Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by University of Michigan professor Andy Markovitz to talk about his new book comparing the history of women's soccer in the U.S. and in Europe. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Joining us now is one of my favorite regular podcast guests. He's Professor Andy Markovitz from the University of Michigan. Andy, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. One of my faves. Yeah. Um, You have a new book out. Uh, It's called Women in American Soccer and European Football, Different Roads to Shared Glory, I have read it. I really like it. I think it uh, answers some questions that I've always had and didn't know about the history of women's soccer, which is obviously uh, a big topic in 2019 with the Women's World Cup in France coming up starting in June. Um, why do you want to write this? Um, because I've, as a political scientist and as a social scientist, have always been interested in outliers and in gate crashers and ultimately basically in democracy and to me democracy is a constant process never ending process of inclusion of including the formally uh, excluded and um, so um, you know my work has been on um, animal rescue and um, Um, uh, social democracy and new social movements. And then uh, later on, of course, I started valorizing my big passion for sports, soccer in particular. And um, in the world of soccer, um, um, the uh, the world of soccer in some ways, certainly in the United States, is actually an outlier. And so that actually also fits in very well with my overall life's project. But women on both sides of the Atlantic uh, have been outs- outliers and gate crashers. So I've been 
very interested in this, and uh, um, the book concretely um, happened because of your encouragement. Um, <laughs> I have to say this, and uh, we talked about the forthcoming World Cup in France, and then somehow got to talking about my chapter four in uh, the, a, a book called Gaming the World, um, which was published by Princeton in 19, Princeton University Press in 19, I'm sorry, in 2010. And so um, really uh, spurred on by your uh, encouragement, I decided to expand and update that chapter, which then became this uh, little book. And I'm uh, Im immensely pleased I did so. Where can people get the book before I forget? Uh, the book can be gotten at, on Amazon. It's actually um, um, the only place you can get it, and it's seven dollars. I hate to do this sort of sales <laughs> job here, but it's uh, so it's actually very affordable, and uh, you can get it both as a Kindle, which actually is cheaper still. I think it's five ninety nine, and the book itself, paperback, is seven dollars. Nice. Um, so uh, there's some really interesting threads in the discussion here and I find it fascinating to try and compare and contrast the development of women's soccer in different countries because certainly in places like the US Title IX played a huge role in giving women access in universities and colleges to playing sports on a much higher level or at least with greater numbers and Title IX didn't exist in other countries in Europe but there are sort of also similarities in at least the timing of women's soccer's development in the 20th century between the U.S. and uh, certain Northern European countries, especially um, where women's soccer was uh, it existed in the early 20th century, then went through a period of not being recognized by federations, and then in the 70s. Uh, seem to uh, ramp up in different countries. Can you discuss a little bit of all that? Yes, um, absolutely. I actually, again, from my earlier work, I actually argue that in some ways 1968 in particular, but uh, the 60s, the late 60s, have created a hiatus, have created a shift in Western liberal democracies uh, that has been unparalleled. Uh, in fact, I've often called it sort of the end of the Victorian era in terms of uh, habitus, in terms of how people behave, in terms of what they dress, on and on and on. And um, interestingly, uh, it also is very much uh, the, the uh, arena in which the second wave of feminism um, comes to the fore, and especially in the countries like the U.S. and Canada and Northern Europe. And so it's not by chance at all that in the U.S. actually it's the, uh, basically legislation and really in some ways the courts by virtue of the United States being a much more juridified country than um, its other sister liberal democracies, courts playing a much greater role and judicial review and so on, that in fact it is a, an act like Title IX that in fact uh, propels this massive change uh, and that, in fact, it's in the the spot of American colleges, uh, which is, which are absolutely indispensable in the creation of American sports, 
um, and uh, in particular, in this case, also women's sports. And indeed, there is a bit of an homage in the book to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, the famed Tar Heels, uh, who have... Uh, been, you know, gotten, I've, I've received, tw I've conquered 23 uh, NCAA national titles, which is amazing. Um, and in some ways, um, you know, still better known for their legendary basketball uh, 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 acumen. Um, so mm -hmm. colleges play a very important role for propelling this social change in the United States. In Europe, it's actually also the women's movement, um, and which actually transforms, as you well say, so uh, the, 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 um, the soccer's position. And it's not by chance that the era between 1970 and 1974 is absolutely decisive in Norway, in Sweden, in Denmark, in Germany, in, uh, in England, um, and indeed also in the United States, uh, where actually it's a two-phase process, I would say. The first phase is really from a complete marginalization and non-existence. Um, basically so much so that, for example, in Germany, the D DFB actually forbids women to play on its grounds of between 1955 and 1970. Uh, the FA does the same actually already in 1921 and lifted in 1970. So you see again this 1970 being a very important thing. And then the next step is actually the creation of um, sort of an intermediate stage, namely uh, in the United States, the AIAW, um, Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, and in Europe, the FIEFF, the Federation of Independent European Football, Female Football, excuse me, meaning that the, the women now start getting some institutionalization for their game, but it's still not part of the men, of the male dominant world. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Meaning the NCAA uh, in this case and, of course, FIFA. And so you have these sort of basically a decade of kind of um, already taking shape, but still outsiders. And then the great crashing actually succeeds. And by the early 80s, uh, indeed, the AIAW actually uh, becomes defunct. And as is, I think, the FIEFF, uh, meaning then by the early 80s, women become formally 
emancipated in the world of soccer, meaning that they are now playing on the same field, which was not the case, meaning that they play for same amount of time, maybe 90 minutes, which was also not the case, meaning that they play with the same ball, the, the studs, uh, um, and that they in fact are formally accepted into these male domains. But I think what the book also shows is that emancipation is not equality. Um, that in fact still we have a long way to go there um, that women have become emancipated in the world of soccer and indeed in many sports uh, but that in fact they still are not equal yeah I, I am struck also in reading this that you think it's not a coincidence that uh, women's soccer has been slower to develop in some of the most traditional male-dominated soccer culture, some of the biggest men's soccer countries, uh, Italy, Spain, Portugal, uh, England to an extent, that that's, that's not a coincidence. Not at all. Um, here is basically the story. Uh, both of these women are on both sides of the Atlantic are pioneers and and the trailblazers but the, the 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 project is a tad different in the united states uh the the women actually are in the forefront of creating the culture of soccer meaning they are pioneers in creating this entity which in fact was left or remained more or less empty uh by the dominant male uh, hegemonic culture, which specialized in the big North American Big Four of uh, American football, uh, baseball, basketball, and hockey. Um, to just use those four team sports is, of course, a NASCAR, but on the whole, those four. So, in other words, the American story is actually one of creating something from almost ex nihilo, out of nothing. And this is hard. This is hard stuff, but it's a different kind of hard. In Europe, um, the story is that the women actually had to not enter into empty space, but actually had to crash into arguably the most monstrous mountain uh, that was uh, completely dominated by men. And in fact, um, so their conquest or their entrance into this is a very different one. Um, and both are very hard and differently hard. Um, kind of ostensibly one would think that uh, the Europeans had it harder because, of course, they're more demeaned, they're more uh, challenged, they are kind of up against the much more uh, formidable enemy, as it were, or someone that ke tries to keep them out. Whereas in the United States, uh, the entry is a little easier because they are uh, entering a space that to men is less important. Uh, and I think that the fact that the second, uh, I mean, the American option has parallels is not by chance. So typically, if you look at the strong sides in the women's game, um, it is the North Korea, it's South Korea, it's China, it's Japan. 
Um, it's uh, the Scandinavian countries. And um, arguably, Australia, Canada, please, very important, very important women's sides. Uh, but again, uh, um, I hope uh, the men will forgive me. They are not in the forefront of world football, and none of these countries are, including, by the way, the Scandinavians. Yes, the Swedes came in second in 1958 when they were hosts. Yes, they got the bronze medal in 1994 in, 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 in the United States. Yes, the Danes were an amazing upset Euro champions in 1992, beating Germany. Um, after actually phenomenally after they were on the beaches uh, and Serbia was not allowed to play so they were summoned from all over the place and actually unencumbered um, won the championship uh, I actually believe that this is a tremendous advantage playing unencumbered but that's a different topic and so the Danes actually did achieve that but on the whole I would argue that in these countries the men never had the dominance the cultural dominance of uh, that they do in Germany, in England, in Italy, in Arge all of uh, Latin America, and so on and so forth. And so um, it's a different trajectory of coming to the fore here. And I would argue both very difficult, but on the whole also quite successful, above all on the national side. On the club side, that's a whole different story. But on the national team side, this is a very, very uh, uh, impressive achievement. And clearly the World Cup uh, uh, in, in coming in France will be a big event. People will talk about it. People will read it, read about it, watch it. Uh, um, the, the players will become stars. Uh, I will never forget that the morning of that great game um, of U.S.-Brazil, we actually, you and I saw each other in Dresden, and when, in fact, yeah. Megan, Megan Rapinoe, in the 123rd minute, um, you know, a, a, an amazing cross, Abby Wambach, the header in, hey, this was one of the great moments of my sporting life. Um, and... Uh, again, think about how when the women win the World Cup in 1991, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think virtually nobody uh, 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 welcomed them when they arrived at LAX, uh, having just won the world. Correct. Yeah, the first world, first FIFA World Championship, because there were earlier World Championships in 1969 uh, and, and 1970. I mean, there were some earlier ones, but those are not recognized. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about that. Um, but sorry to interrupt. I, I was going to ask you about those sort of earlier unofficial world championships because the first FIFA Women's World Championship was 1991. But uh, what happened with these earlier unofficial world championships? Well, these are, this is exactly the, the era, Grant, that I said sort of the in-between. This is the AIAW. This is FIEFF. Basically, when women start... Uh, as women are in organizations which are, however, not recognized by the dominant male world. So, in fact, in 1969 and 1970, there was a European championship, interestingly, in Italy, and, uh, um, and both actually the uh, Italian drink company, Martini and Rossi, play an important role. And fascinatingly, there's also a, an interesting Danish club called BK Femina. And Femina was a women's magazine, not a feminist magazine, but a women's magazine, uh, which in the early 60s sponsored 
the, uh, this this football club, and then actually the sponsorship was given up, and the football club and the the the, the magazine remained completely apart. And it's this team that actually plays in Italy in 1969 for the. Um, uh, European Championship, which it loses to the Italians, and in 1970 it uh, beats the Italians in the World Championship. Uh, again, very few play, and it's not recognized. Then in 1971, something very interesting happens because there's another World Championship. In this case, in Azteca in Mexico, um, and. Over 100,000 people go to this, which I found, and actually research, this is amazing. It was literally kind of a year after, of course, uh, the Brazilian uh, side uh, won its treble and the uh, Coupe Jules Rimet uh, was retired with them. And um, so this time Denmark actually um, beats Mexico 3 to nil, and actually a, a young um, um, uh, a Danish uh, uh, woman, I think by the age of 15, I forget her name now offhand, uh, actually scores a hat trick. But these are sort of not, they were events, and but they are not really recognized as um, official parts of uh, the game. And as you well know, few... Um, sports are as um, catholically organized, meaning with a clear pope and a clear pyramids, as world football. And um, if you are not in the church, you are not in it. You are excommunicated. So all these other, these odd world championships that I recount in the book and just mentioned are really for naught and non-existent. So the first one is indeed the 1991, the Michelle Akers et al. championship in China. And that's the one. And on the national level, it's actually phenomenal. When you think about it, actually, um, the American team, it's insane. I mean, the American team has literally won of the, you know, of the seven um, uh, uh, World Cup and six Olympic uh, uh, tournaments out of, you know, it has won actually every single time, has won uh, some medal with the exception of the last Olympic uh, Games. I mean, this dominance is, uh, is amazing. Um, and I think uh, really bespeaks a phenomenon, not only a great achievement, but also uh, soccer's position in many ways in the United States, which is a little different, and uh, meaning it's also um, less salient, which means it's less fraught with hatred, with all kinds of other things, uh, less fewer obstacles than the equivalent is the case in uh, the other countries where, however, on the national level, they're starting to be accepted for the simple reason that this is actually a national pride. So the English, uh, mm -hmm. the England team in the last World Cup suddenly became a huge success story because they were uh, superb. They actually beat the Germans for the first time in 20 tries. And they beat the Germans that the men actually don't do so often. Uh, so uh, for, for the English to beat German in anything is a big deal. And um, the women's national team, also in Germany, uh, has attained 
some significance, um, cultural significance, so much so that the World Cup will be an event. This has not parlayed into the club side. So club and country on the women's side is still solely country, with one amazing exception, which are the Portland Thorns. I must say I have to go there this summer. I actually had a chance. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had a chance to see the Timbers, but I've never seen the Thorns. And when I did this research, I mean, they have 16,000, 17,000 um, spectators, never less than 13. This is insane. I mean, most other women's teams in Germany are around 1,000, uh, you know, f- uh, 1,200, um, you know, sometimes actually under um, uh, a, a thousand, the same in England, even though they're actually supported um, some of them, at least, of the, uh, the, the Super League uh, are, in fact, a supp- or are part of their much more important men's teams, uh, which I think also has some problems, but that's a different story. Um, but, you know, again, it's, uh, the attendance is, uh, is, is, is nothing or um, uh, virtually nothing. And in Port- Portland has become, I think, the women's soccer, ca- chem- uh, soccer uh, city in the world. I mean, it's the soccer capital, as it were. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, uh, maybe Lyon in France might be the only one that's close to it but uh, I don't think, at, at this point. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, uh, interrupt, but I think it's, it's regular attendance is still way lower. It's not... Yeah, it's, no, it is. That's exactly. So, I mean, it's higher than the rest of Europe including such great sides as Turbine Potsdam and uh, FF1 Frankfurt and... Um, you know, and again, we're talking about in some ways a kind of marginalization. For, for example, in Germany, it's always the game is always a, a, a kind of a, there is always the sobriquet of Frauen, Frauen, Fußball. Frauen. Um, that already means it's somehow uh, spe- different. With the men, it's never called men of Fußball. It's just Fußball. And that is a very, very tall mountain to climb. Um, so this, uh, you know, for the Europeans. Going back a little bit here, we talked about the unofficial world championships on the women's side that took place. What actually caused FIFA to get its act together and finally start organizing a true women's world championship? First one in 1991, which wasn't even called at the time a women's world cup. It was like the World Women's World Championship for the M&M's Cup, and they retroactively called it uh, Women's World Cup later on. Um, but what? Why then? Why? You know, why did FIFA finally at that point organize this? You know, it's called a delay. It's a culture. You know, it's basically uh, the pressure societally in these um, countries really uh, led to the fact that this this was. Uh, uh, a, a, a new force that you just could not not accept this. Uh, I'm sure with, uh, I wish I were a fly on the wall, but I'm sure with immense uh, derision, I'm sure with Im- immense contempt, uh, with not seeing it in any way as authentic, but ultimately something in the public domain of these liberal democracies s- demanded that women be given that women be emancipated, formally equal. And even FIFA uh, could not get around that. Um, And so ultimately, uh, it's a form of, you know, these institutions respond are sort of 
to me, institutions in general, nothing to do with sports, are really in some ways mirrors of societal developments. And that's why I'm actually um, much more of a sociologist than a political scientist, but because in some ways they are, they, they have to reflect this, at least in sort of democratic entities. And um, FIFA just, uh, I'm, you know, just could not uh, delay this any longer. I'm sure it also played a role that, um, you know, it was uh, potentially lucrative. Um, after all, it included the, for the first time China. This was literally uh, 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 a year uh, uh, after, um, or actually t two years, uh, slightly, a uh, year and a half to two years after Tiananmen Square, uh, when uh, the Chinese uh, put down, or you know, the very brutally the student rebellion, uh, and China for a brief while is sort of. Um, a bit of a, a persona non grata internationally, and so obviously organizing this event uh, was important. So um, I'm sure that this was not done with enthusiasm, um, and you, we know all the resistance later and suggestions about women playing in tight shorts and all this stuff. Um, but ultimately, um, the you know uh, institutions have to react, and uh, they do so slowly, but they do. So FIFA, again, I'm not privy to any internal decisions of what in fact happened in the late '80s, why this happened. But clearly, uh, maybe uh, the 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 Norwegian woman Espelund, uh, I forget her first name offhand, who is a very important leader. Karen. Karen Esp exactly. Karen Espelund. Thank you. Who yeah. is a very important player in Norway. And again, by the way, not by chance. It's Norway. Um, where, um, again, women, the men's game is not very strong. Plus, in the northern countries, obviously, there's something called social democracy, <laughs> which, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and an extensive welfare state and a very egalitarian culture and all of this, which really propels women into uh, into the ranks of, of, uh, of almost equals in the world of uh, association football. And Karen Espelon, thank you, uh, I'm sure played an important role. She, after all, becomes a major player in the Norwegian Football Federation, uh, the first mm -hmm. woman, and she then becomes also an internationally important. So, you know, um, uh, the gates ultimately crash, and it takes a while. Uh, you know, a lot of corrosion, but uh, the, everything crumbles. So based on the research you've done for for this project, uh, both you know, in the U.S. and in Europe, is it possible for you to sort of see the path that women's soccer has taken over the last few decades and in any way predict how this might continue to grow or spread to other countries around the world? Yes, I think. Um, I, I think that um, we already see uh, clearly some, some bleeding, if you will, sort of kind of expanding into um, countries that have been immensely resistant. So, for example, um, you know, Latin American countries. Uh, where mm -hmm. Argentina is now picking it up. And I mean, Brazil um, had the great players. But um, so obviously, the again, institutions change. And so I would say that on the national side, 
uh, meaning on the national, uh, yeah, on the, on the countryside, to use soccer language. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the countryside, I think this is already on a, a very fine trajectory, meaning uh, the World Cup will become bigger still. It's a big event. It will be broadcast. It's a big a cult, it's, a, it's a big issue. Um, and uh, it will be, you know, it, it can't be hushed up anymore. It's, a, it's, an, it's not quite as big as the Olympics, and of course nowhere near that of the Men's World Cup, but it's a big deal. Um, now, on the club side, this is a, is a very, very different story. And here, personally, I'm, I'm still worried I just don't quite see, other than in the United States, by the way, because the clubs are called colleges. Um, <laughs> um, the, other than in the United States, but here too, of course, colleges still don't uh, have a huge attendance, uh, attendance. But I think it's on the club side where I kind of worry or don't, don't see actually uh, through my research any kind of uh, translation of the national or the countryside on the in the women's game, but um, you know ultimately maybe that need not be the case. In other words, maybe in fact look at the Algarve Cup. The Algarve Cup actually is an annual event, which is a very big deal, but it's of clearly four national sides or country teams, um, where the best uh, you know twelve and then eight. Uh, uh, participate and it's it's uh, it's a big deal but it, of course it is that important because the clubs are less of a deal um, right. so I just don't um, look for example I'm kind of distraught by the fact that the women's cup final in Germany now actually um, decoupled from the men's in Berlin which I thought was a good thing now being played in Cologne but the attendances have actually have gone down um, so mm-hmm. I don't quite, you see, the whole thing about clubs is a form of uh, basically tribalism. Uh, Some of it actually very ugly and very nasty. And um, a student of mine just emailed me literally 10 minutes before I started talking to you from arriving in Heathrow Airport in which in one of the lounges it says, uh, no football shirts allowed. Um, Meaning, and she asked me, yes. And I, I, she says, why? And I probably surmised because, you know, they don't want any fights, um, you know, <laughs> in this lounge. Um, uh, you know, and uh, so that actually is very much part of club identity. And this, of course, takes 100 years. And so um, I just cannot see, but, you know, maybe actually it's, I'm just not imaginative enough, but I cannot see the translation of affect into the club world because into the national side it's much easier you can all be we are all mm-hmm. americans or you're all germans or you know it's the national anthem and all of this stuff and so basically it's very easy to trans translate a passion an emotion onto the national side where women actually now excel and people will follow it and really you know are rooting for the united states or japan or whatever and it's very clear what you're rooting for. But on the club side, it's very hard to translate that into a passion that the men's side has had for 100 years. doesn't mean it's not impo- that it's impossible. I have no idea. But it will take a much longer way for it to happen. 
Well, you might get that invitation, Andy, to come out and uh, watch a game for the Portland Thorns with uh, the Riveters, their fan club out there. I think oh, they'd love to have you. I'd be I'd be honored. I'd pay my own way. I'd love to. Are you kidding me? No, I'm serious because it's actually, it's unique. I mean, I've never, I, I, when I read the research, I actually did a double or triple uh, take when I saw these numbers because I thought they're actually wrong and they weren't wrong <laughs> compared to the other uh, numbers, including, by the way, of course, even in the United States. The book is Women in American Soccer and European Football, Different Roads to Shared Glory. You can get it on Amazon. Andy Markovitz, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Andy Markovitz, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. That's it for this week. See you next time.